Every business is unique. But the ups and downs we experience as we launch and run our businesses are pretty similar. We're Harmon Brothers, the team behind pooping unicorns and other weird but successful video ads you've probably seen. We help businesses grow through unforgettable video marketing, and we're no stranger to tricky situations. In fact, we embrace them. The goal of this podcast is to show how your crappy circumstances could be the golden opportunity that leads to your next success. You're listening to Poop to Gold. Welcome back to Poop to Gold. This is Benton Crane, your co-host and the CEO of Harmon Brothers. Today, I'm joined by Greg McEwen. Welcome to the show, Greg. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Benton. Now, let me give a quick introduction to Greg. So Greg is the author of the book Essentialism, and the book Essentialism has had a major impact on how we work at Harmon Brothers, and it's a big part of the culture that we've built here. I'm sure I'm not going to do uh, the book summary justice, but let, let me sum it up like this. Essentialism is an argument that we should focus our time and efforts on doing the things that we do best, on where we make a high impact, and then relying on other people around us to do what they do best, as opposed to trying to focus on anything and everything um, all at the same time. It argues that what we say no to is oftentimes more important than what we say yes to. Did I, uh, did I do it justice? You, you should just keep going. You, you, you're doing a better job than I'm gonna do. This is a, uh, yeah, essentialism is figuring out what is essential. Uh, so it's exploring, creating space to figure that out. Uh, it's then to eliminate what is not essential, whether by just not doing it or by delegating it. And then thirdly, it's creating a system to make execution as effortless as possible. So it's those three things, explore what's essential, eliminate what's not, execute so that it becomes easier over time to do the things that are very important. And it's, um, I think Essentialism was one of the books that finally got me to pull the trigger on hiring a personal assistant. You know, up until right. that point, I had always kind of seen a personal assistant as, uh, you know, Unnecessary. only, yeah, only the super rich should, uh, should deserve a, a, a personal assistant. Whereas me, you know, I'm just, I'm just an everyday guy. Um, you know, I don't deserve that level of luxury. I think that was kind of how mm -hmm. my mind thought about it. But when I read Essentialism, it kind of gave me permission to say, no, it is okay for me to rely on someone else and to delegate so many of those things that, you know, take up my time and attention. And I personally believe that my assistant has made me better at my job and better at leading Harmon Brothers, maybe than any other one particular hire uh, that 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 I've experienced. I think a lot of people are trying to save money by spending time when really they ought to be saving time. Uh, That's right. And, and spending money. I think I ruined that quote somehow. But uh, but that that trade off. They think about it wrong. But you know the the bottom line is for 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 most people and most entrepreneurs they're going to end their life with more money than time. That's right. <laughs> so so that, you know it's a it's a misjudgment to to think oh I'll, I'll just do it i can just do it i mean one of the practical insights that i think is helpful here is instead of saying well this task only takes me five or ten minutes a day it's to add it all up and to say my goodness if, if you only spend five or ten minutes a day doing a thing and you multiply that by 20 30 years you suddenly have this huge enormous amount of time uh, and so that's what helps to get you over the hump of, of training somebody else, of hiring somebody else, of, of going through that process. Uh, because yes, it does take longer to hire the right person and to train them and to teach how you would want that thing done. But it's a fraction of the cost 
of just forever doing it yourself. And so this, this awareness of the preciousness of time, of how pathetically short life is and how little of it we really have available, I do think is one of the core elements of how to live as an essentialist, uh, which is what essentialism is, is really all targeted to achieve. It's, it's maximizing the, the time that we do have. Yes, I think it's two things. It's, it's recognizing how short it is and then also recognizing how disproportionately important a few things are compared to everything else. That oh, we I don't love- live in a life where almost everything is equally valuable. We live a, in a life where a few things really matter uh, and can make a, it can move the needle, can help you achieve breakthrough results. And most other stuff is is relatively trivial. And so it's it's a bit like as an entrepreneur, you, you wake up and you say, oh my goodness, the whole my whole entrepreneurial career, I've thought I was in a coal mine and my job was sort of productivity, get as much stuff from point A to point B. And then suddenly realizing, no, it's a diamond mine. I've, I, I've, I've always been in a diamond mine. It's not about how much stuff I get done. It's whether I find those right few things that are exceptionally valuable and, and capitalizing on those. That's really the essentialist entrepreneur. Oh, I love that analogy. Now, when I, when I read the book, looking back now, I think there was something that I misinterpreted or that I drew the wrong conclusion. Um, and this is something I've wanted to get your opinion on. So looking at it through the lens of Harmon Brothers and asking, what are we world class at? And what are, mm. you know, what are we second to none at? And wanting to make sure that organizationally we were focused on that one thing that, that we were world class at. Now that I look back at that, I think that... I made a mistake in kind of guiding our team to focus all in on what we had already become world-class at, at the Mm. expense of what we could potentially become world-class at. And I think there was a period of time there where we weren't doing enough experimentation and tinkering to kind of, uh, you know, keep exploring and finding what's next because we were so focused on doing what we had already proven we were world-class at. I'm interested to hear your uh, hear your take on how you navigate a trade-off like that. Yeah, I mean, what you're what you're doing there, I think, is applying almost a counterfeit of essentialism, and and it's it's this is that focus is both a verb and a noun. Often, when people have a sort of mindset that says, you know, focus is a noun, it means it's a thing you, a picture you take. It's static. It's mm-hmm. there. It is. We are. This is who we are. Or this is what we want, and they forget focus as a verb. Focus is what you do. It's what you continue to do. I mean, it's built into the model that I already mentioned briefly. Explore is the foundation of essentialism. First you explore, then you eliminate, then you execute. And it's an ongoing process. But explore mm-hmm. is always the, the initiation point because you want, and in fact, essentialists explore more broadly than non-essentialists. And that's a bit of a paradox because you'd think, well, a, a, an essentialist only, only explores a couple of things and then does one thing and so on. But no, what happens is that essentialists explore constantly, but they don't go deep on everything. They don't, they don't run after everything. So they're ex- expansively looking, well, what if we did this? And what would the future be? And maybe it would be like this. And imagine, for example, an, an, an essentialist duo, uh, Steve Jobs uh, and Johnny Ive, who met together every day it was the on the calendar, like the norm every day over lunch that they would meet together. And what are they doing in those meetings? They're just talking about possible product ideas. Mm-hmm. What if we did this? What if we did that? And, and and here, Steve Jobs, in his effort to bring around a renaissance at Apple, 
has so many things he could be focused on, has so many meetings he could be having, and of course was having, and yet still his routine included, you know, having this meeting with his head of design for, for product design. Let's keep talking about this. What if, what if that's what they spent those t- that time doing every single day? What if, what if? And Johnny and I have talked about it, that, that most of those ideas, they just, just sort of, oh yeah, okay, well, that's interesting, but they fall you know, there's no sort of life in them, energy. And then he said, every so often, he said, they would say, well, what if this? And he said, he said, it would take the oxygen out of the room. They're like, that would be something. That's exactly the entrepreneurial process that I think essentialism suggests is that every day you're creating space to explore in a busy, you know, executive's life, entrepreneur's life. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have space for that. It doesn't present itself. Email presents itself. You know, the latest text presents itself. Even the latest client presents itself. The next project presents itself. All of those things, if things are otherwise successful, are going to be acting on you. But creating space to explore almost never appears on its own you know, just there. So you have to design and act upon it so that you're having this time. You don't go after every idea. You don't go after every single thing you talk about. You wait until the, the thing, this is it. And this will propel us forward, you know, to a whole nother level compared to where we've been in the past. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And looking back now, it's as clear as day that I had misinterpreted the meaning of essentialism when I, I, I honed too much in on this idea that I need to focus on what we're world-class at and where we can make the highest impact. But I totally missed what you just described of the exploration in and of itself is essential. And, and that's part of living an essential, an essentialist life is carving out that time to explore. I, I love that so much. Yes. And let's just build on it for a second, because this is the, the challenge. This is, essentialism exists for successful people. And, and I think that's actually more people than maybe even feel successful. I think in some ways being alive today is almost equal to success because we have so many options and opportunities at our fingertips just because the internet exists, mm-hmm. because most people are literate, because most people have enough health to be able to operate with some level of confidence about the future and so on. Like so so many things have been given to us because of unprecedented success over the last couple of hundred years in most of the developed world. You suddenly, you have way more coming at you than you can possibly do. So the default p- position for most people is going to be that they will be stretched too thin. They're going to be busy, but not necessarily productive. They're going to feel uh, you, you know, like people are hijacking their agenda all the time. That's default for most people. Essentialism is trying to say, well, if how do you become successful at success? A part of that is what you did. Part of that saying, okay, well, we're going to eliminate the stuff we shouldn't even be focused on. Yes, that is part of the journey. Elimination is part of this process. But if you eliminate without exploring, then then that's like a different, that's like a book called Noism or something. You know, that's a no to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't write that book. It, it's that combination between exploration broad exploration, but then also continually looking through all those options, pruning them constantly so that the, the one next big thing, in this case for Harmon Brothers, becomes clear. You know, we do want one more thing. We don't want 50 new things, but we want one new thing that will help us to go from where we are to the 10x version of us as an organization. I love it. So, Greg, you probably wouldn't admit it, but you've become 
of a world-renowned expert in this uh, in this this field of essentialism, and to reach that level of uh, expertise, if you will, certainly you've had to overcome some huge obstacles. This being the Poop to Gold podcast, we want to dive back and hear a little bit about your journey. Can you can you share some things that you've overcome on your journey to get where you're at today? Yes, one of the moments that comes immediately to mind is something that literally had was a negative that has turned into a positive. It's not just overcoming it, it's that that formed the basis of much of what I've done with essentialism now. And, and it, it happened when I was, um, I got an email from uh, my manager at the time that said, look, Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. And uh, cause I, I need you to be at this client meeting and, 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 you know, I'm sure they were joking, but as it turns out, Friday, we are in the hospital. Our daughter's just been born. Uh, and, and instead of being focused on what was essential in that moment, uh, I am, asking a different question. Not, I'm not asking what's the most important thing I need to do today. I'm saying, how can I do it all? Mm-hmm. How can I keep everybody happy? And, and I, I just straddle it to my shame. I go to the meeting. So I'm you know, leaving the hospital, I'll go to this meeting afterwards. My manager said, well, look, the client will respect you for the choice you just made. And, and I'm not sure that they did. I don't remember the look on their faces evincing that sort of respect, but even if they had, it's clear I made a fool's bargain. I violated something more important for something far less important. What I learned from that was that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. And really, in some ways, that was the birth of essentialism uh, because it raised for me these questions. Well, why, first of all, personally, why are you making that trade-off? What has happened over time that your stated values and even like my historical values, what I'd actually done in my life suddenly had been chipped away at to such a degree, or my sense of agency had been diluted to such a degree that I'm saying yes to that instead mm-hmm. of just being able to feel, fully feel at peace with no. Today's a trade-off day, for heaven's sake. This, this, it's clear. Can, 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 I, can I ask a question about that moment? Was it quickly after that experience that you you had enough introspection to realize that was not right or what did you kind of go for a time thinking like hey i'm trying to do right by my family and i'm trying to do right by my client and i'm trying to do right by my boss at what point did you recognize clearly that no that's not what i want to do and that's not who i want to be it it wasn't immediate um it it continued the same the same process of giving up agency you know, drip by drip, day by day, thinking mm-hmm. I can't push back, thinking I can't negotiate this, have this conversation, wanting to avoid the awkwardness, saying if you sacrifice for long enough, you'll get the things that you really want to get. And so that will justify it. So so it went on for longer. And uh, what I observed in my own life and have now observed in others as well is that the trends really matter. And so you can... <laughs> you can operate in an unsustainable way for quite a long time. And so you have to really look at, look at the trends over a few months or even years, and especially be careful of reaching tipping points, of reaching places where you're not just using up you know, your reserves from today or your, your relationship trust of today or for a week. or month. You, You're now digging into the deep stuff. I mean, if you let it go long enough, 
and and this isn't wasn't at all the case in in, in my instance fortunately but if you leave it go long enough well that's the stuff that sort of family breakups are made up and divorces are made up and and, 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 and psychological breakdown and, and burnout and 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 can be made of they they don't happen in a day they happen slowly over time mm-hmm. and so for me that it became a point where i was like no it it, it has to change now and i and and that wasn't actually in that moment but then in looking in hindsight i sort of look and say well you know that was clearly a point of violation and i mean me i'm not i'm not pointing fingers at somebody else this is i am responsible i made those violations i thought that that was the the right trade off to make at the margin and that's what we have to be careful of is a decision at the margin over time produces a strategy we didn't mean consciously to pursue i've often wondered in the um in the addiction recovery world, um, you know, whether it be, um, you know, drug addictions or food or sex addictions or whatever they are, um, they often talk about how an addict kind of has to hit this, uh, this rock bottom moment uh, before they realize that their life has become unsustainable and they, they realize that their life is on a trajectory that that's not what they want it to be. What you just described reminds me a lot of my own personal experience where I call it my addiction to distraction. Um, mm. I, I, I feel like unknowingly I developed this addiction to distraction that took me away from being essential. Um, and so whether it was a meeting or email or checking social media or whatever it was, there was always some distraction that was pulling me away. And where it was impacting me most was at home with my wife and with my kids. Like I have a few short hours in the evening to be with my kids and here I am scrolling Facebook or, or checking my, my email. And at some point, I, I can't even pinpoint exactly when or, or where that was, but it, it felt, felt a little bit like what you described, where I had been trending for several years on the wrong path until I finally like, kind of hit this rock bottom moment and recognized this is not sustainable and this is going to destroy relationships if I do not solve this. Is that, mm-hmm. is that kind of a, a common experience that, that people go through as they recognize this need for essentialism? Uh, y- yes, I think that's right. Sometimes people aren't very good at noticing it in themselves. It's become so normalized for them uh, you know, that they're getting more fatigued uh, you know, they're, they're, they're stretched constantly too thin and so on. But actually, they feel like they've been rewarded for that. And so uh-huh. it's what got them to their level of success, or at least they perceive it to be that that's what's happened. So the perspectives we have, the stories of success that we have, um, are so strong that we can have new data, contradictory data mm-hmm. come from, you know, over a long period of time, but the bias, the story of success that we have overwhelms that. And so we just don't pay attention to it. And so I've often found that essentialism is given to someone. Some, someone else sees it plainly, clearly, uh, and then says, look, you know, you need this. <laughs> uh, I, I remember it's a kind of a high profile example, but uh, it comes to mind that Steve Harvey was working on a, a show called the, the Little Big Shots and the director for that show from Great Britain uh, says to him uh, one of the days of filming, he says, listen, you are literally the busiest person I have ever met and there's a book you have to read. And the assistant goes out, gets the, you know, the book over lunchtime, hands it to him. He goes to his hotel that room that night and he, he starts reading it and he just kind of reads the whole thing. And the reason I know about it is because he blogged about it. He's like, this book changed my life. 
And I mean, then I, over time I've got to know him. And one of the things that I remember him saying to me is that he hadn't taken a summer off since he was 16 years old. The first summer he took off was when he was 60, when he was having this conversation with me. And, and I think that is, is a pretty normal way of how people get to this, especially the classic non-essentialists, the people who are highly driven, highly capable. In fact, they have a curse of capability. They can do all sorts of things. Uh, they, they want to succeed. They're ambitious. Uh, and they, in fact, have been successful. I mean, all of that is, is what a non-essentialist is. Uh, and so all of the reasons that they are a non-essentialist are the reasons they're going to carry on being a non-essentialist, unaware, at first at least, that their behavior is leading them to plateau in their progress. Um, and even start to fail. So even as their behavior is leading them to start to fail, you know, whether that's personal health would be one of the early tales, you know, signs, uh, whether it's strained relationships with the most important people and family members of our life, or eventually whether it's actually the work of that as well, our professional work, our entrepreneurial ventures also start to suffer and all because, uh, because of success. <laughs> <laughs> It's so, so success can be a catalyst for failure. And our job is to try and be self-aware enough before failure catches up with us. And then, then we, everyone's an essentialist in times of emergency and failure. The goal is to do it before that. And sometimes other people do it for, you know, pass it to mm -hmm. someone and say, look, I can see it. And sometimes people have enough self-awareness themselves. Well, I, I appreciate the heck out of you coming on the show, Greg. And this, is a, this has been such a great experience for me to, I feel like, uh, that person who handed Steve Harvey the book and gave him a little bit of a wake-up call. You know, I've read Essentialism. It was a few years ago, but I feel like this conversation has just been kind of a new wake-up call for me, and I'm already counting the ways in my head just as you're talking of, you know, uh, things that I need to uh, adjust and make changes in, in my life. And so I'm excited to, to pull out the book and read it again. Okay, so, so, so I know you were going to go somewhere else, but now I have to ask. So you see, what what... What is it that's essential for you that you're under-investing in right now? What's the main thing that comes to mind? So for me, and, and this, this is kind of fun, it's, uh, you, you've got me uh, in the therapist, uh, therapist seat right now. Um, so as I look back over the trajectory of my life for the past few years, I have been so career-focused and so driven to make Harmon Brothers succeed. While I'd, I'd like to profess that I'm a great dad, um, mm. I'm lacking. In, in that area and the relationship with my kids is not where it needs to be and it's not as deep as it needs to be and and so that is like the main thing that just jumps out at me right now that my relationship with my kids is probably one of the most essential things in my whole life but I'm not treating it that way and I'm not giving mm -hmm. it the attention that uh, that an essentialist should or would yeah you told me two things just then you said that the value is there for you, like it is a value. You value them, you know, and it's being reawakened in this conversation or your lights being shined on it. You go, oh, this, this, this matters so much to me and matters so much, you know, outside of me, it just actually matters. And if I'm honest, I'm giving, and I, I don't want to give you a grade, but like you're, you're what I hear you saying is like, well, I don't know. I'm not, it's not an A, it's uh, you know, I don't know if it's even a B the way I hear you describing it's like, I've made my, my value and my actions are not aligning with each other. I mean, it's almost like what you are saying is that you feel like you're failing in it. It's not like you're saying, ah, oh, you know, I've just kind of worked late hours this week. You're like, 
the trajectory has been such that I, I, I'm worried I've really missed something over a period of time. I'm putting words in your mouth, so you correct me. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's probably pretty, uh, pretty close to accurate. I mean, my oldest daughter is, is 12, so I'm looking at it through a lens of my opportunity hasn't passed, but if mm-hmm. I continue on the trajectory that I'm on, it will pass before I know it. How many, and, kids, and so how many kids do you have? I have four kids. So my oldest is 12 and my youngest is four. Yeah, what you just said is really important. You're like, if I was having this conversation 10, 15 years from now, if you felt the way you feel today, 15 years from now, it would be the way I just described it. I think I actually kind of failed. I, I didn't do terrible. I'm not a terrible father. I'm not completely absent, but I just am not I, wa- I wouldn't be there for them if this is how it continues for the next 15 years. I'd go, yeah, they came, they went, I was there, but I wasn't. That's accurate. There's something, you, you have some hope and you want there to be hope in the, sen- in the fact that, well, she's 12, you know? Yeah. And what somebody said to me a few years ago that, that I'm gonna share with you now, which is that you, you've just entered the golden years. Right now, you're, you're, you're in it. Probably been in it for a year or two. The golden years they define for me is where all of your children are out of diapers, but they're not driving yet. Okay. And they said that period there, four or five years, that's it. Like that's, those, that is where you, you, if you invest in those years, then it makes you know, all the difference. And so they, we didn't have to be told that twice. We said, okay, this is it. We are going to invest. We're going to create. And for us, that included things like, okay, we're going to, the special vacations. We're going to make the holiday, make memories. We're going to travel. I started, when I traveled, I would take one of my children with me. I thought it was going to be mostly good for them, but I found that it was really good for me as well because it forced me to play and explore and pay attention when I might otherwise just be in a hotel room in some other place, hardly know where you've been. Once you get home, you can't remember, you know, that kind of, business travel. We've now sort of, we're exiting the golden years as a couple of our children driving now. And so you can see that this window will close and another opportunity of course opens. You now have this. That's quite exciting. You have this chance to, to build these golden years. So let me ask you this tangible question. What is it that you really need like what would success look like tangibly? Is it time per day with the phone off at home, you know, it's, is it five o'clock work ends and I'm, I'm at home completely. Is that what it is? Like, what's the Delta that you feel you need to make where you would say, I'm not a perfect dad now, but I am not under investing in this essential role. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good question. My hunch is that yes, kind of that phone off is part of it, but I, I think it goes a little bit beyond that. And it's that if I'm being honest with myself and I look at the time that I do spend with my kids, it's rarely fully present. Um, meaning that I'm there physically, but I'm more often than not, you know, somewhere else mentally. I'm thinking about, you know, other projects, other problems. Uh, I'm, You're thinking about Harmon Brothers. That's right. And, and I think if I was to identify how would I measure success, it would be figuring out how to get fully present time where when I'm with the kids, the kids are the focus because I'm not good at that. Yeah. And I, and I hear again, it's just a concept here, another tipping point concept, which is right now, Harmon brothers is the major. 
mm-hmm. your children are the minor. That's right. And what you're wanting is to recalibrate your life so that the family is the major and Harmon Brothers is the minor. That's even right. while even while you still want Harmon Brothers to be successful, it's not like you you care less about that. But that feeling of how, how is it that you uh, that you live to work versus working to live? You want more of the life to be the thing that you're investing in. I'm still trying to work out like how much time difference is it? How much more time do you need? I know it's physically present isn't the problem. You're physically there. So how much time is it per day where you're really focused on them compared to what you are doing now? I mean, how much time are you doing it now? How much time do you feel like you are with them really focused talking to them, listening to them, laughing with them, playing with them in their world. Like how much time do you do that? Did you do that in the last 24 hours? That, that, that's an embarrassing uh, question, I think. Uh, last 24 hours. No, I, I, I honestly can't yeah. say that like I gave them fully present. Time uh, at all. Yeah. Um, give me the last, uh, last week. Uh, the last week they probably got, they probably got a few hours because over the weekend we did a little family trip and we built a gingerbread house together and we, you know, we, we did our Sunday worship services together. So, so they, they got a few hours over the weekend. What, what you just described is that, is that you know how to do this. I mean, that's, that's an important part of input. It's not, it's not a competency problem, right? You, you know how to do a gingerbread house. I'm guessing you weren't the one that bought the gingerbread house and initiated that. I might be wrong, but Still, once the opportunity is given to you, you know how to interact with them. You have a relationship with them. It's not, you're nowhere close to zero. So the question is, is what would enough be? How would you know that you were investing sufficiently? Is it a personal date with each kid each week? Or is yeah, it all I, of I the can... kids together? It, it's one date through the week that you, that you, it's just dad time and you're just taking one of them out or you're taking all of them together or you're like, what, let's try and form this into sort of an amount of a sub, a, a tangible increment of change. Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I'm, my hunch says that if I'm giving them genuinely present time, it probably wouldn't require that much time, mm. you know, to, to make a massive difference uh, you know, between the trajectory that I'm currently on and the trajectory that I want to be on. Right. Um, and what and is I, it? what's your gut? What, what's the, give me a number. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe like, you know, even if I just read to them for a half hour in the evenings or, or, or something like that, I imagine even just 30 minutes a day could make a massive difference. Yeah. Okay. So you, you've now named it, right? You've got a concrete thing. And uh, how often do you read 30 minutes a night to them right now? Like, give me the last five years. Is this something you've done fairly often or hardly ever or never? Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty sporadic, you know, once every two or three weeks or something, you know, read a storybook yep. here, read a chapter book there, that type of thing. So um, I got, I got two little stories about this for you. The, the first is um, on the What's Central podcast that I just launched a few months ago, the very first episode with my wife, Anna, because uh, I wanted to give her the chance to give her side of the story okay. of uh, the, the, the day in the hospital. And, and, but we also got talking about reading for some reason. We, we had no agenda. We we're just chatting. And, and really, Anna has just, I mean, we've done a few things, but Anna has just emphasized reading, right? I mean, that's the truth. And one of the ways that she's done that is reading to them every night. And it have, we haven't done it recently, 
uh, very much. She's, she's read probably a few books this year to them, but for several years, especially through the golden years, mm-hmm. um, it was every night. It wouldn't just be half an hour. It starts half an hour, but it grew because the more you get into the story and the more they get into the story, oh, another chapter, another chapter, another chapter. And, uh, and our eldest just was applying to university. And as part of that, just thought it'd be fun to sort of look at how many books she herself has read. And, and it's sort of, a, you know, it's well over 200 books now. And, and it, it's added up incrementally and it's become a part of the culture and it's become something so special. I mean, I, I, I just have to say all of this. So this idea of the 30 minutes a night, I think has a very good trend to it. If you're reading, it's hard to read and have your mind elsewhere. Mm. You can, but if you're reading out loud from some novel, classic literature that, that they are into, uh, you, you're going to be more present than if you're not doing that. That's right. So I feel like you, you have identified something that if you do it every night, if you literally do it every night for the next 10 years, I know that sounds overwhelming, but like if you do that, you get the output you want. You get the relationship that you want because there's something... I would say magical about that moment. I haven't read as much to the children as Anna has, but I did read them the whole Harry Potter series. And, uh, and, and, and even when she's reading and I'm just sitting around with them or even, even walking around the house with them, there is something so magical that all, even as teenagers, they've carried on doing it where they'll sit out in the hallway and listen to and be read to it's safe. It's compelling. It's all these things. Okay. So, so there's only really one question left for you with this, which is, you know, how, how do you make this easy? How do you make it construct a system now that you're going to follow through on this tomorrow when you don't really want to, you know, you're not in the conversation anymore. And there's, there's all pressures and not just pressures, but opportunities, exciting things at work and something will have come up, something happens. How do you do it? What do you do so that you do this, whether you feel like it or not? You know, it seems like I like to think in my head that I'm only late coming home once in a blue moon because of extenuating circumstances at work. But I bet if I'm being honest with myself and if I actually, uh, you know, went back and did a thorough analysis of how often I'm late, you know, miss, you know, putting the kids to bed and stuff like that because of working late. I don't know. It wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if it's more than like 40 or 50% of the time when yeah. in my head, I, I'd like to tell myself it's only for extenuating circumstances. No, I understand. You, you, in your head, you, you think it's, uh, it's an exception. But actually, the exception has has become a norm. And I think what you're saying is that in order to create this space for this half an hour, the price to pay for that is to leave work at a set time so that you're there for dinner, so that there's space to be able to help and that things go smoothly and then there's time to be able to read. And if you arrive late, there's no way that you can do That's all right. that preparation for that moment to happen. That's right. Um, so there's a, there's another... there's a Another episode I would actually like you to listen to is with Ben Bergeron, who's an who's an essentialist who really impresses me. I mean, he he literally read essentialism and 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 he's applied it in ways that inspired me. Um, one of them was that he leaves the office at a set time. His choice is is five twenty five uh, because he wants to be home by six on the dot. And so he literally, somebody else told me about it. I was on another podcast where I was being interviewed and they told me, hey, do you know Ben Bergeron? And I didn't. And they said, well, let me tell you a story about him. He leaves work at the set time, no matter what's going on, he'll start packing up his things. Uh, it literally is walking to the door at 5.25. So he's physically in his car at 5.30, no matter who he's meeting with. And I asked him about this when I had him on the show and he kept an actual grid, you know, like an Excel document where he's actually marking off here are his values, his highest value is family first. And he had five 
specific metrics for that. One of them was eating dinner with his family. One of them was leaving at 525. And so over a two or three year period, he managed to leave work at 525, about 75% of the time. So he had that and had it recorded and had that measurement. You know how to do this. I mean, sure you've mm-hmm. done it in work environments. I'm sure you've probably done it in other environments, but he's just managed his actual priority so that he could, you know, execute it over time. So that was inspiring to me. What I do now as after having had him on the show is I, I stand up out of my office and it's COVID. So, so in the office, I stand up and walk out at five and I announce it like a town crier <laughs> loud to the whole house. What time it is? It is 5.01. It is 4.59. Or if I'm late, it's 5.23. And of course, you don't want to have to yell out 5.23 when everyone has a social contract and understanding a commitment that I'm going to be there at five. So you don't want to do that. So it's an incentive when I look up and I see the time and it's two minutes to five and I'm in the middle of something. Of course, the temptation is just carry on. But now I have a counterweight mm-hmm. to leave. Now, if you don't have that counterweight, there's always something you cannot drink the ocean of everything in your business. So you, there's always something at five. And then if you're going to, if five, thirty, six comes in, if it's six, why not seven? And if it's seven, why not eight? And if it's eight, why not nine? And so on. Like there's, there's no real natural end. We're not like farmers that the sun goes down and that's it. You, the, the, the lights are on. So you can keep going ad infinitum and day after day. So that would be my, it sounds like we have sort of two behavioral shifts here. One is a set time. What's that time? Um, it'd probably be five thirty. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm, I'm, how long does it take you to drive home? About twenty minutes. About okay. fifteen twenty minutes. Got it. So five five thirty means you you for sure are home by six. But sounds like if you left literally at five thirty, you'd be home maybe even before before that, maybe five forty five, walking in the door, and that you actually keep this in a document. So if I asked you about this in thirty days you would be able to show me, well, even if it was twice, you'd at least be able to show me that you're, you're, you're <laughs> going to keep an account. And then there's this, the second item is 30 minutes of reading to my kids. So those are the two behavioral shifts. As, as, you, as we're talking about it now, what's the emotion in you? What do you feel? Do you feel there's no way I can really do that? Do you feel, oh, this is very stressful? I'm just now adding on these two things that, that are going to strain me when I've already got lots on. Do you feel like, oh, this is totally doable. This is, I can do this. This is no problem. I just know what to do now and I can execute. What's, where's your feeling right now? Uh, I, I think it's, uh, I'm feeling two, two sides of the coin here where on one side I'm, I'm feeling hope and I'm feeling kind of this, uh, kind of this appreciation around this idea of, I think I've recognized internally that I need to make some changes and having you step me through and talk me through to get to those two concrete changes, I find that very helpful. There is this flip side of it where there's a little bit of nervousness around like, can I really follow through on this? Can I really dedicate myself to this? Can I really make it the priority that it needs to be? Can I really make it part of my routine? There is some nervousness on, on that side, kind of balancing out the, the, the hope um, yeah, on the other I mean, side. It, there should be nervousness because the behavioral changes we're talking about is, is, is they're concrete, which is really good. If done, will make a huge difference in alignment with you, what your actual essential goals are and intent is. And they are massive changes. They might not sound massive. They sound, oh, yeah, just leave it this time and do 30 minutes. That's it. Those are two huge behavioral changes. And, and the reason that they're so huge is because they don't, no behavior exists in a vacuum. The reason that you leave at a, the times you leave right now are because of an entire system that is built that reinforces and encourages this current behavior. 
we're not talking about one behavioral shift. We're talking about a system shift. So if we pretend it's behavioral only, then it sounds easy, but you know, deep down it's hard and, and, and maybe not even possible. If we accept that what we're trying to do is now change a system, this is very helpful because now you say, well, what's all the system changes that need to, what, what are the changes that need to happen for a really great, I won't, I won't, I won't push any more listening to you after this, but for a great insight into how to do this as one more episode on the what's essential podcast, which is with B, BJ Fogg, um, mm-hmm. who wrote tiny habits. Yep. But what was fun in there is we did an essential intervention. I did an essential intervention with him at first for the first half of the conversation. And then once we'd identified what change he wanted to make, which was to work a four day work week, it was a big change for him because he's working, you know, it's working weekends and all sorts. So once we identified, I say, okay, well now it's over to you. You wrote a whole book on how to make that small changes equal a big change. So how do we do it? And we then walked through exactly layer by layer how he would guide someone to do that. So I think if you listen to that, you may find some specific insights from one of the world's leading authorities about how to create systems that allow habits to mm-hmm. to be maintained over time. Is that interview on your podcast? Yeah, it is. So so my podcast is the What's Essential podcast, and it's just the BJ Fogg episode. Uh, but one of the things he talks about is he, he uses this two by two. I'm going to try and remember this accurately, but it's things that you believe you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you believe you, if it's easy and you believe you can do them, okay, fine. If you think that they're really important, they'll help you, but you don't believe in it. You've got to create more system support for you. You've got to talk to your assistant. You've got to talk to everyone around you. You've got to help them to construct things that will get, keep you going in the right direction. I mean, I think the big challenge isn't leaving work at a set time or eating for 30 minutes. The big challenge, the real work is you now, after this conversation, talking to every important part of the system, everyone you're accountable to, everyone who wants something from you, everyone you work with, including your wife, your kids, your assistant, your team, your everybody involved saying what you're about to say to me, which is why do you want to make this change? I want you to practice what you're going to say to them by practicing with me. Why does this change matter so much? I guess I would summarize that by expressing that I consider my kids one of my very top priorities. And if I'm looking back over the past several years of my life, I haven't, my actions have not treated them as one of the top priorities in my life. And if I continue on this trajectory, I'll miss a window of opportunity to build the relationship with my kids that I want. And, and so knowing that I have to change that trajectory now so that you know, I'm not trying to fix it later or living with regret later, I've got, to, I've got to make time to consistently be home on time so that I can read to my kids. And that's going to require changes at work where these people around me are going to need to understand that I have a specific reason for wanting and needing to leave at that time. Yeah, how about this? Um, just my restate of what you said. I have things that are more important to me than work. And you know that work matters to me, but there are things that matter more to me. And I'm sure that's true for you as well. And I am really concerned that my relationship with my kids is not what it needs to be. And if I don't make a change, I'm going to fail. And this, this is so valuable to me, so essential to me that I need your help to help me to make these changes. Will you help me? I like that. The, the, the reason that we're practicing this right now is because even where I've coached people through this process, even where I've had them write down a script that includes why they want to make the change. And then even when I have them sort of stand up and then deliver their prepared remarks, they skip the why. 
it's written down and they will read it and skip the section about the why. And it happens not like 5% of the time or 50%, like 100% of the time. And I, I'm so curious about this, about what it reveals about our vulnerability as people and our desires to avoid that vulnerability that I, I now have a sort of hypothesis, which is that we basically just never tell people why things matter to us. If you don't share it when you've written it down, practiced it in a workshop type setting and you still don't do it, then you're not doing it in normal life. And so what we just did a little practice on there, you know, be vulnerable, share that why. Don't assume people know it. When you talk to your kids about this change, tell them why. When you talk to your wife about it, when you talk to your team about it, tell them why. It will, it will give them permission in their own lives. Mm -hmm. It will give a depth of cultural improvement to Harmon Brothers. And it won't make people think, hey, listen, work doesn't matter. It will help them go, oh, we're, we're working somewhere where, where we can be honest that success here is not the, uh, the greatest success of life. We want, and you want people to live that way because you want them to come into work, being able to be happy to be there when they are there. That's right. Well rested and in, in alignment. They'll get more done in fewer hours if they aren't feeling tortured and against their own values in doing so. Well, today has been an interesting conversation. Thank you for being open and vulnerable. Greg, thank you for uh, being so generous with your time and your, and your expertise. I, uh, uh, I didn't go into it expecting to uh, to get a personal intervention, but I I am feeling amazingly grateful for it, and uh, and I I'm excited to go put this into put this into practice. Uh, thank you, Greg. Benton, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. How can our listeners stay in touch with you? Well, I I think that um, I mean if people go to essentialism.com. There's a whole series of things that we're building there to help people to carry on in the way of the essentialist. Uh, the podcast is one of those things. We have a one-minute Wednesday newsletter that started a few months ago that's had a great response. Just you can read it in one minute each week, but it keeps you coming back to what matters most to you. Uh, but if they're only going to do one thing, just go to essentialism.com. Sounds fantastic. Okay, for our listeners, make sure to like, share, and subscribe, and we'll see you on the next one. At Harmon Brothers, we're known for what we call our hero campaigns. These are big nationwide campaigns for brands like Squatty Potty, Poopery, Purple Mattresses, Lumi Deodorant, and many others. What makes these campaigns special is that they've helped scale those businesses by tens of millions of dollars each. Now, companies reach out to us on a regular basis wanting a hero campaign. They want that type of growth, they want that type of branding, and they want that type of awareness. But the simple reality is, most businesses and entrepreneurs aren't yet quite ready for that level of growth. So we've built what we call a hero incubator that is designed to help entrepreneurs and companies prepare for a hero campaign and to be ready for the type of growth that they're looking for. The hero incubator starts with a marketing audit. We offer these marketing audits for free and you can apply for one at harmanbrothers.com forward slash audit.